0: Well, welcome. Welcome to this evening's event, Sexual Abuse, the Catholic Church, and the Challenge of Transparency, with Peter Steinfels and Jennifer Hasselberger. I'm David DeCoste of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics. The Ethics Center is very pleased and deeply grateful to the Ignatian Center and the Jesuit School of Theology for co-sponsoring this event tonight. At the close of the event, if we could ask you to please fill out the evaluation forms, we'd really appreciate that. Also, I wanted to call your attention to a copy of Peter Steinfeld's uh, really epic article on the Pennsylvania grand jury report. It's outside in the hallway there. Please pick up a copy of that um, after the talk. Also, uh, after the presentations this evening, we will have time for questions and conversation. If you could please keep your comments and questions brief and to the point, that will allow more people to get into this conversation. And if I could say again, that's brief and to the point. That would be great. I'll turn things over now to introduce our speakers to my Santa Clara colleague, Tom Plant, university professor here, professor of psychology, and a noted national expert on this topic of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Tom.
1: Um, Do I need the mic? Or no, this is good. Good, all right. First off, let me just say thank you all for coming. We know that uh, there's so many events, so many things going on, and it's just great to see a full packed house of students, of faculty and staff, of community members. We are very grateful for your presence. One of the wonderful things about university life is that so often, There are wonderful talks and presentations that are on our campus that are completely free. They even feed you brownies. (laughs) And you can just stroll across campus to listen to speakers who you've been dying to hear, who come to us here in the Western frontier from places far away. And so we are very grateful for that. We are also very grateful for the Ethics Center, the Markerless Center for Applied Ethics, David DeCasse, who's always a terrific host and organizer, for the Ignatian Center, uh, and also the Jesuit School of Theology, who are co-sponsors of this wonderful event. So we are very grateful to them for organizing and making uh, magic happen. And so we are very, very grateful Uh, for everyone here and particularly of course our very distinguished and uh, remarkable speakers tonight. So I'll give just a very brief introduction of our two speakers so you have a sense of their background and then we'll get right to it. So first off, our first speaker will be Peter Steinfels. And he's the former co-director of the Fordham University, a fine Jesuit school, just saying, center on religion and culture, and is a university professor at Fordham. And he was the religion uh, columnist for the New York Times for about 20 years or something like that, and editor of Commonweal Magazine, a very important magazine that um, uh, many of us read. He is the author of several books, including A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America, published by Simon & Schuster in 2003, and he lives in New York City. His article in Commonwealth Magazine, Commonwealth Magazine, which was kind of blockbusting, as David had mentioned, is entitled The Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report not what it seems, it's inaccurate, unfair, and misleading. Not that he has any feelings about this, but this was published in March 21st of this year, and it really was really quite an article and quite a contribution. So Peter will be our first speaker, and our second speaker is Jennifer Hasselberger, and she's a canon lawyer who received her a degree in canon law from the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium in 2004. She also has a, a doctorate in philosophy from the University of London. She's a member of the Canon Law Society of and served as chair and member of the resolutions committee of that society. And she's practiced as a Canon lawyer in the United States and internationally. And she was selected as the 2013 Person of the Year by the National Catholic Reporter. So we are very lucky to not just get one, but two terrific uh, speakers tonight. And I'll hand it off to Peter, who will do the first uh, presentation. Thank you.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thanks to the markula Center, the Jesuit School of Theology, the Ignatian Center. I'm also indebted, indebted to Jennifer Hasselberger, not only for her willingness to respond to my remarks, but for her overriding concern for the safety and well-being of children and young people that led her to resign her position in the Minneapolis St. Paul Diocese and take on the burden of being a whistleblower. Although I have covered uh, the sexual abuse scandal for more than three decades, I have a sharp sense of how much I still don't know. After all, I never had the focused responsibility of a church official like Dr. Hasselberger. I was uh, also tracking and writing about developments in other faith traditions and Christian denominations, including their sex abuse scandals, as well as maintaining my earlier interests in uh, questions of culture, politics, intellectual history, morality of warfare, bioethics, and so on. In fact, the one thing that I am confident that I know about the church and the sex abuse uh, and sexual abuse, as I will argue later, is that we know less about it than we think we know. That is why it is so valuable to have a respondent like Dr. Hasselberger, whose experience and perspective as a chancery official and in extensive contact with both survivors and perpetrators and church officials is so different than my own. I would like to organize my remarks around uh, four statements. The crisis is not the scandal. The Pennsylvania grand jury report is not what it seems to be. A trial is not a history doing what is necessary is not doing what is sufficient. These distinctions are deliberately cryptic, perhaps even provocative. They warn us against two easily equating realities. They don't deny that the realities may overlap, just as if I said California is not the United States, or the United States is not North America. We should not have, we would not have, a sex abuse crisis today, for example, if there had been no sex abuse scandal. In fact, we have both. But the the two notions are distinct. Throughout the 1990s, sexual abuse of minors by Catholic priests was featured on front pages and primetime news. Those reports culminated in the Boston Globe's uh, exposés in 2002, a year that saw graphic accounts of the life-shattering effects of priestly abuse printed and broadcast across the nation. In 2001, The 22 major print outlets in the United States published 98 stories on Catholic sexual abuse. That's roughly an average of one every three months, although, in fact, they're not distributed equally across all those publications. In 2002, they ran 4,138 stories. In 2004, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice concluded that between 1950 and 2002, 4,400 priests, between four and 5% of the Catholic clergy serving over that period of time, had violated nearly 11,000 young people. This epidemic of abhorrent crimes and sins was a horrible scandal one in a long list of betrayals of Jesus Christ's good news that Catholic Christians must ponder and pray over. The church tortured and burned living people for heresy. The church was late in withdrawing its long approval of slavery. For centuries, the church planted and nourished the seeds of what finally mutated into genocidal anti-semitism. The church proved painfully reluctant to endorse the rights and liberties that should stem from its teachings on human dignity. No Catholic with any degree of education can escape these terrible facts. In the case of each of these and other scandals, We are called on to examine our collective conscience and ask what allowed them to occur and what needs to be done to make sure that they don't reoccur. But to talk of the sexual abuse crisis suggests something more, something very immediate and urgent. We speak of the scandal. But not the crisis of anti Judaism, for example, even if I have many friends deeply engaged in stamping out the brush fires and the lingering embers of Catholic anti Semitism. We speak of the scandal, but not the crisis of burning heretics. So when we speak of the sex abuse crisis, and here I mean precisely the sex abuse crisis in the United States in the year 2019, what do we mean? Is it, as not a few people imagine, a massive endangerment of children and young people in American Catholic institutions? A recent very comprehensive report on the crisis from the Leadership Council, Roundtable quotes Kathleen McChesney, the former FBI official who established and headed the bishops office for child protection in 2002 the number of reported abuse cases she told uh, she said to the report dropped from about 600 annually between 1985 and uh, 2002 to about 20 per year after 2004. She quite rightly continued, more needs to be done. Yes, one case is one too many, and constant vigilance is necessary to keep those numbers as close to zero as possible. But just stop and think about those numbers. Last year, about 550 people were murdered in my native city of Chicago. If the city reduced that figure down to 18 or 19, say, or even less, it would be welcomed as a nearly miraculous achievement. If the current horrid rates of deaths by gun violence or by opioid overdose were reduced, like Catholic clergy sex abuse cases, by almost ninety seven percent would we pretend that nothing significant had been done anyone who fudges or minimizes such changes over time or time frames in general as the pennsylvania grand jury report did is simply not telling the truth is simply scorning even the the most basic standard of transparency. But if present endangerment is not the key to today's crisis in the U.S., what is? Let me name five factors. One, the abuse scandal has gone global. According to the World Health Organization, more than 120 million children are sexually abused around the world we should be dismayed indeed outraged that such exploitation has touched the church as well but it is probably not new what is new thank god is the growing recognition and intolerance of it what is new is the perception of this corruption of religion not as a thousand discrete local stories, but as one story. Above all, one story about not Islam or Hinduism or even Christianity in general, but about the one faith body that is associated with institutional unity, Catholicism. The dates of abuse and the actions of the local hierarchies may vary, but today what happens or happened in Chile or Australia or Italy or Nigeria or Poland reverberates in New York and California, in fact, all across the worldwide church. Secondly, in the U.S., The McCarrick case has brought to a boil a long simmering distrust of the American hierarchy by both liberal and conservative camps of active Catholics, each camp with its own set of suspicions and its own agenda for reform. Third, the scandal has consequently become part of a civil war over the papacy of Pope Francis, symbolized by the demand for his resignation by Archbishop Vigano and centered on Francis's pastoral ambiguity about sex-related issues from second marriages to homosexuality. Fourth, in the US, a growing parade of state and federal investigations promised to produce a drip, drip, drip of sensational headlines for years to come, draining church morals and resources and magnifying the ongoing hemorrhaging from the pews of young people. Finally, fifth, an unmet backlog, backlog exists of deep and genuine suffering pain, anger, and desire for acknowledgement, contrition, justice, and vindication on the part of victim-survivors of priestly abuse, stemming primarily, but not entirely, from the sins and crimes of 30 to 60 years ago. One element of the crisis, as I suggested, was the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report which clobbered me and no doubt most of you last August with its catalog of abuse of a thousand or more young people by hundreds of priests since 1945. It did not take me long to uh, suspect, however, that as my, uh, my second statement put it, the report was not what it seemed to be. I was well aware of the reality, as a journalist, of being handed an 884-page document and having to write a story on it for a looming newspaper or broadcast deadline. So I was not surprised to discover that almost all newspapers, all news stories, in other words, what 99% of the public knows about the report, were based on its sensational 12-page introduction. These pages were written in language that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court later called incendiary. They highlighted 20 examples of particularly repulsive, grotesquely sacrilegious abuse. Even more important, The introduction and report effectively equated the despicable abuse with the conduct of church leadership. For over 70 years, it stated, quote, all victims were brushed aside by church leaders who preferred to protect the abusers and their institutions above all. The report summed this up, quote, priests were raping little boys and girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all. Now, I was all too familiar with cases that really deserved that description, especially before 1990. But that charge, simply on the face of it, struck me as dubious. How many of you have seen the movie Spotlight? For those who haven't, sorry, spoiler alert. (laughs) Do you recall the moving scene when the Boston Globe has gone to press with the first of its exposés? All the newsroom phones start ringing. Calls from survivors of abuse from whom the burden of silence has now been lifted. It is a fact that a tremendous proportion of allegations were first reported to church officials after 2002 and handled after the Dallas Charter had mandated that molesting priests, regardless of how long ago uh, their deeds and how long ago uh, their, their deeds were had occurred and regardless of any treatment that they should be removed from all active ministry and clerical identification. All new allegations and the bulk of old ones were to be routinely reported to law enforcement. And I need to mention that there have been shameful exceptions, each instance of which deserves vigorous pursuit to prevent backsliding and uncover leadership negligence. But I began to systematically work my way through the Pennsylvania report and found that depending on the diocese, and there were six six under investigation, no less than 30 to 40 percent of initial, initial, Credible allegations only came after 2002, after the Dallas Charter, no matter how much earlier the abuse. These victims were almost all not brushed aside, but heard. And when they wished also assisted, the abuse was not hidden, but reported to law enforcement. Their abusers, if still alive and active, were not reassigned but removed. What about the other 60 to 70 percent? In one particular diocese, where I painstakingly drilled down into the grand jury report's own data, I found that about four out of 41 cases clearly qualified as classic examples of victims being brushed aside and abusers protected. That's one-tenth of the cases. All All of them were from before 1982. Several other molesters were able to escape supervision or removal by moving to other dioceses. But the rest, including the 30% in that diocese, accused only after 2002, were anything but shuffled, as the phrase goes, to another parish. Most were promptly barred from ministry. Some, between 1982 and 93, were sent for treatment. But there was no evidence suggesting that this was simply a ruse to hide wrongdoers. Not every diocese had as good a record, but looking over, a hundred, over hundreds of cases convinced me that this diocese, in which I had looked very painstakingly at the data, was an outlier. True, the report's profiles were sometimes incomplete or ambiguous, but the gap between the carefully examined material and the report itself, to say nothing of the hundreds of pages of responses from the diocese, which the Attorney General's office merely appended to the report without any apparent response, that gap was so vast that I felt confident in concluding that the report's charges about how church officials handled abuse allegations, quote, are grossly misleading, irresponsible, inaccurate. And unjust. Now because I knew that this conclusion flew in the face of much public opinion, I spent several miserable months and wrote over uh, 12,000 words uh, setting out my case. And those, that article is available either on the, in the issues that are here, if there's enough of them, or you can find it on the Commonweal Magazine website. As I have suggested, the Pennsylvania report appalled me but did not surprise me. If anything surprised me last August, it was the apparent ignorance of all this horrible pain-filled history among so many Catholics and not just among younger ones. I recalled an argument that I had in the spring of 2002 following the Blitz of Revelations that began with the Boston Globe. My exchange was with a churchman uh, then participating in the drafting of the Dallas Charter after years of trying to get the bishops to take decisive action. The church, I told him, had to establish an independent blue ribbon commission to produce a history of this scandal. No, he replied the first thing we must do is to put into place measures that can assure Catholics that children are safe in our institutions. His point was well taken. That was indeed the crisis of that moment. Since since Dallas, new allegations and the vast bulk of old ones have been routinely reported to law enforcement. Names of credibly accused priests have often been sent to parishes where they had served. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Catholics, have participated in extensive preventative programs of vetting and education. Nonetheless, once those crucial practices were set in place, the task of effectively communicating that history was left by the wayside. For example, the landmark John Jay studies on the extent of the abuse, on its causes and consequences that came out in, I think, 2004 and 2011, um, were written in in an understandable but impossible sociologies, uh, and none of that was translated into ordinary storytelling English for the public and especially the Catholic public. This was not a cover-up. This was a failure of imagination. It was a failure of initiative, and not just among bishops, but Catholic intellectuals and scholars, people like me as well, a failure of transparency. Which brings me to my third statement. A trial is not a history. Journalism, it is said, is the first draft of history, but in this case it has also been the last draft as well. I confess to having spent many years habitually and knowingly committing journalism alone and with others. (laughs) I was also academically trained in the study of history and always feel an inner historian trying to burst out. While journalists and groups of victims, and that should not be forgotten, brought the scandal to light, a great bulk of what was revealed naturally emerged from lawsuits, criminal investigations, trials, charges, depositions, testimony, competing lawyers, and now state investigations. And that has posed some problems. There's a very valuable book called Holding Bishops Accountable, written by Timothy D. Lytton. Lytton is not a Catholic or a journalist or an activist in the abuse scandal, although his sympathies are clearly with the victims. He is a legal scholar out to show how civil suits for damages, as in the paradigmatic case of lung cancer victims suing tobacco companies, how that can be an engine not just of compensating injured individuals, but of bringing about social change. Lytton brilliantly shows how the storytelling needs of plaintiffs for abuse survivors and the media for winning readers and viewers converged to framing the abuse scandal as he writes a morality tale about right and wrong a stark conflict between victims and the leaders of a guilty self-serving institution bishops Fully knowledgeable about the threat to children, shuffled predatory priests from parish to parish in order to pr- protect the priest's or the church's reputations. Was that framework always and necessarily false? No, not at all. Was it seriously incomplete? Yes, it was. A trial, as I said, is not a history. The trial of Louis XVI was not a history of the French Revolution. The Nuremberg trials, however necessary, were not a history of the Germany that had produced Nazism. Exploring that history led historians back to Luther and forward to Prussia, Bismarck, World War I, and the Versailles Treaty. In my view, the dominant narrative of the sex abuse scandal has been framed by litigation to the neglect of many other actors and factors that unlike the bishops or religious orders have not been realistic sources of the kind of compensation victims understandably seek. In this sense, we do not yet have a real history of the sex abuse scandal. Do we need one? I think we do. Do we want one? Right now, I think most of us prefer a trial. We know about the crimes and we want the accused bishops even more than predatory priests who are often pathetic. We want them identified, tried, convicted and punished. The impulse is understandable. The verdict of a court is definitive guilty or acquitted, and personal. The verdict of of historians is usually diffuse and structural. But only a genuine history will provide full transparency and protect us from oversimplification and misrepresentation. Last Saturday, I spent much of the day reading a 90-page deposition that Dr. Hasselberger gave in 2014 regarding the inner workings or uh, perhaps I should say inner dysfunctions of her archdiocese's leadership. That kind of document would be essential to any real history. I can imagine a history with fine-grained studies of, say, five different types of dioceses, but also many broader topics dealing with sexual taboos, changing therapeutic views, legal evolution, and law enforcement, and so on and so on. Perhaps we could return to some of that in the discussion. In the wake of the Pennsylvania report, I not only realized that many people had no history of the sex abuse scandal, they also had no understanding of the differences between a normal grand jury that decides whether to indict or not to indict people and an investigating grand jury like the one in Pennsylvania that may actually name hundreds of people church officials, as well as predatory priests, yet indict no one. In the former case, innocence or guilt will be determined in a trial in which the accused are represented by counsel. Evidence and testimony can be presented and examined and questioned, and a judge enforces rules designed to make sure that both sides get their, day, their, their fair say. It is an old saw in legal circles that, uh, in the case of, uh, it is an old saw in legal circles uh, that a uh, a competent prosecutor and a normal grand jury can quote indict a ham sandwich, but that prosecutor acts in knowledge that the indicted ham sandwich will get its day in court. By contrast, the findings of an investigating grand jury will never be so tested. Operating in virtually complete secrecy, it is uh, real and it is realistically not only the jury but the attorney general's office directing the jury. It effectively constitutes itself not only investigator and prosecutor but judge and jury as well. Its findings can be challenged and and tried in the court of public opinion. And here, church officials, like the bishops or uh, or their representatives, are sorely handicapped. They have lost credibility due to past actions, often of their predecessors, and they have pastoral responsibilities for the unambiguous condemnation of abuse and the healing of victims. I confess to puzzlement, however, when people demanding transparency and accountability in the church do not sound a peep in the face of a procedure as one-sided, unaccountable, and cloaked in secret as the Pennsylvania grand jury report. And this brings me to my final statement. Doing what is necessary is not the same as doing what is sufficient. I would like to apply that distinction to transparency, one of the watchwords of the Vatican summit of bishops from around the world that was held in February, but also to the summit's other organizing themes, accountability and responsibility, and to the important council of the Pope and others, listen to the victims. Transparency will certainly be the key to one of the five factors fueling the present crisis, the McCarrick case. Who knew what, when, and why was it kept secret? Transparency may be more difficult in response to the new global reality of abuse. As daily reports of religious violence remind us, The church often exists in hostile environments and under untrustworthy regimes. At some point, transparency becomes an instrument of control, even peril. Think Facebook, maybe, certainly think China. Or think sharing church information with any number of governments in the Middle East and Africa. Transparency can be crucial to accountability or it can inhibit accountability. We want free speech and congressional oversight. We also want personal privacy and voting and a secret ballot. We want parish and diocesan financial data. We also want the seal of the confessional. In short, our invocation of a standard like transparency seems necessary, but are those invocations sufficient? Sometimes we have to limit the application to, uh, to, hon- to honor other standards like accountability and responsibility, which is why we promise accusers confidentiality. Sometimes we should extend our application of these standards beyond what is absolutely necessary to what is sufficient. Our listening to victims, for example, which in the United States largely means listening to victims from three or more decades past, is absolutely necessary. But is it sufficient? Should we widen our horizon of victims It is well recognized that the terrible legacy of direct victims is magnified by that of indirect victims. Family members whose relationships and hopes were shattered. Parishioners now haunted by doubt and distrust. The vast majority, 95% of priests, whose ministries and indeed their very persons are now shadowed by suspicion and stigma. As the circle widens, there should be no equating of all the degrees of victimization or suffering. But I do wonder whether we also should include all those who stand to be deprived in the near or or further future of the charity moral compass and sacramental life of Catholicism because of the toll taken by the current crisis, both justly and unjustly. If as members of the body of Christ we have a responsibility toward the surviving victims, direct and indirect, of the past, do we also have a significant measure of responsibility for the indirect victims of the future. Two other factors distinguishing today's crisis from the greater scandal pose more complicated problems. The enlistment of larger contending agendas for church reform in our responses and in our divisions over Pope Francis's papacy. Today is the fifth event addressing the abuse crisis and the future of the church in which I have participated since the uh, February summit in Rome. What, uh, What ran through the previous gatherings was the assumption of most Catholic participants that the future unfolding of the crisis was in the hands of the church and its leaders. While I largely agreed with much that was said about needed changes in the church. I also felt that I live in a somewhat different world, one not so exclusively Catholic. What we do as church is crucially important, but there are also forces at play outside the church, also crucially important, uh, forces that we need to recognize both for understanding the past and shaping the future forces that we can and should engage as both citizens and Catholics for the sake of the church and for the protection of children. It seems to me naive and parochial to think that the pace and outcome of the present crisis will be determined only by forces internal to the church rather than also ones external to it. Consider the agendas I hear discussed for church reforms. Please, yes, pursue them. Full steam ahead. As I wrote in A People Adrift already too many years ago, the church in the U.S. has been facing a crisis of possibly, quote, irreversible decline, even if the sexual abuse scandal had never occurred. But also please recognize that many items in these agendas for reform, including my own, are too large for action in the near future and raise issues properly demanding extensive discussion and dialogue quite apart from the sex abuse question. What is more, they are inevitably being tossed into the overheated cauldron of division about Pope Francis. My worry about the internal focus of so many responses to the crisis extends to the prospect of government-sponsored investigations. In principle, these investigations could be cleansing. They could help us find answers to still puzzling questions about the genesis and handling of abuse. They could empower more victims to come forward and get assistance. They could tell us whether the extensive educational vetting and auditing mechanisms that almost every diocese have put in place since 2002 have in fact worked as the audits seem to indicate. They could resolve whether the publicly known instances of episcopal negligence or complicity indicate widespread violations of the Dallas Charter. They could compare the experience of the church with other institutions like public schools, juvenile penal institutions, athletic programs, and summer camps to identify dangers and propose safeguards that would reduce the prevalence of this childhood plague no matter where it might occur. They could do all that. They could. But will they? What are the incentives in terms of political ambitions, media attention, public recognition, public reaction or legal blowback? What is the likelihood that the media might become self-critical of its ready-made narrative? If the Pennsylvania grand jury model prevails then the Catholic Church faces a disturbing a distorting confusion of past and present failures regularly refreshed in the media with stories of abuse from around the world. It will all blur together. The hard-hitting, first-rate plaintiffs' lawyers whose ads seeking victims to represent now appear regularly in the Wall Street Journal and at the top of many Google searches involving the church they will not abandon an immensely successful business model. The damage to the church will be extensive. Already existing fragility, especially among the young, will be aggravated and losses will be magnified. Public witness enfeebled. Spiritual, intellectual, and imaginative heritage devalued. 37% 37% of Catholics now tell the Gallup Poll that as a result of recent news about sexual abuse of young people by priests, have they, personally, they have personally questioned whether to remain in the Catholic Church. And of course, the most uh, questioning are the youngest and already distanced or deinstitutionalized. Catholicism in the U.S. may hunker down into a defiant, embattled, but hardly evangelical core. Does that matter? I know many Catholics asking themselves, isn't this simply a just punishment? If the church is to be humiliated and afflicted by by deceptive reports as well as by true ones, wasn't Jesus despite complete innocence, similarly humiliated, and executed. And questions like that gnawed at me while pouring over the Pennsylvania report and then again in ordering my thoughts for discussions this spring, especially during the penitential season of Lent. I have worried that my efforts to correct the record in Pennsylvania might give consolation to those who still deny the church's sins or might add pain to those who suffered from them the night my critique of the grand jury report was posted online I sent an advance copy to a survivor I know well fearful that he would first learn of it in some mangled or oversimplified summary and these concerns have led me to troubling these troubling questions particularly around whether what is necessary for us to do is also sufficient. Transparency may have a considerable way to go within the church, but it appears even less present in the multiple investigations now in the offing. Should there be an effort to address that? Should there be lay Catholics doing what bishops are no longer in a position to do? It is necessary to demand that bishops be accountable but is it sufficient? Are we we also accountable for informing ourselves beyond the headlines? For the vitality of the church 10 or 20 years from now, do we ask accountability of the media or of public officials? Pope Francis warns that responding to the evil of sex abuse requires a conversion and change of heart, not just new protocols, protocols or programs. He has called for courage in confronting this scandal, and I have tried to take that message to heart. I don't want talk of converted hearts to refer just to other people's hearts, primarily the bishops, but not my own. And I know that at least for someone in my place, it takes far less courage to chastise bishops than to criticize the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report or my fellow journalists. For too long the American bishops have been were, were trapped in denial defensiveness and inaction but what about ourselves are we in denial or benumbed about the full scale of today's challenge can we keep our hearts from being too angry too divided or simply too weary to respond adequately i hope and pray that we can Thank you.
1: Um, thank you so much, Peter, uh, for those remarkable comments. And we're moving right over to Jennifer now for her response and comments, and then we'll do a Q&A Uh, at the end. Thank you.
3: There are some seats up front um, if people want to move up. Uh, First, thank you, Peter, uh, for your kind words, um, your wonderful assessment, and for all the work you've done on this issue. I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to hear you speak, and I'm also grateful to the Santa Clara community for your warm welcome and your invitation to be here tonight. But I want to apologize to you all. I want to apologize to you for my failure. It's true, as you've been told, that I resigned from my position as chancellor of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis and became a whistleblower. However, I also participated in a system that knowingly put children at risk. And by my presence and work, led you to have false assurances of safety. And for that, I apologize. It seems particularly fitting for me to be here tonight at a Jesuit university, as it was the Jesuits who provided me with the spiritual and moral framework that guided my decision to resign from my position with the archdiocese. You see, after working there as chancellor for a few years, I realized that I was in trouble really big trouble. I realized that there was no way if I continued to do the things that the church wanted me to do and be the person that they needed me to do, there was no way that I was ever going to get into heaven. A shocking admission, I know. And so I started to look for things that would help me reconnect with my faith. And one of the things I found was the Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Minneapolis. I started volunteering there with the students that attended because in that way, I could feel like I was building up the body of Christ again. I was doing something positive and I was reclaiming who I was as a person. That was a wonderful thing. But those of us who have spent time at Jesuit educational institutions know that the message that you're constantly given is that the things that you do matter and that the education that you're getting isn't just for you, but it's for what you can do out in the world. And it was very hard for me at that moment to hear that message every day, knowing what I knew, which was that the very things that I was doing in my day job, the things that should have connected me most closely with my faith putting the people that I was looking at every day at risk. And this wasn't like abstract risk either. One of the priests of the archdiocese who had been in jail for formerly for abusing children was actually employed at the same school. He wasn't in ministry because he was operating in a leadership role. I knew that because of my position in the archdiocese, but his name Wasn't on any list that had been published. The parents hadn't been informed. The students didn't know the teachers, the faculty, the staff, they're all ignorant and it became increasingly difficult for me to look at them every day, knowing what I knew. It's difficult. I think, to hear, especially after the assessment that Peter gave us, that this wasn't in 1990, 1970, or 1980. This was in 2011 and 2013 that this was happening. Years after the Dallas charter, years after the one strike, you out policy years after all of the promises and assurances. The truth was at that time, there was still imminent danger to young people in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Those are only two examples of the kind of issues that were taking place that led me to resign. And they're not even the most significant ones. The Archdiocese was regularly disregarding the promises that it had been made. And as we would discover, predictably, children were being abused. I resigned in 2013 so that I was able to make my concerns public and it was after that in 2015, that my archdiocese was criminally and civilly charged with child endangerment contributing to the delinquency of minors and creating a need for care. Again, these charges didn't relate to abuse that occurred in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties. They related to abuse that was taking place in 2011 and 2012. And this wasn't a grand jury process, which, as Peter rightly notes in his Commonweal argue, our article, are designed to determine if a trial is possible. This was a prosecution. And that prosecution ended when the archdiocese admitted to the charges, stating that it had failed to keep the interests of children ahead of the interests of the archdiocese and its priests, This was in 2016. And what was released wasn't a grand jury report. It was 900 pages of documents and interviews that were gathered as part of the criminal prosecution. It's tempting to believe as Peter argued that the danger of sexual abuse by clergy has largely passed and that we have put procedures and policies in place today to keep minors safe. I tried to believe that myself. And I would even say that at times, I feel like I was successful in making the church a safer place. But I didn't become a canon lawyer until 2005. I didn't begin my career until years after the Boston Globe stories, the adoption of the Dallas charter and the so-called one strike policy. And yet I spent my entire career working on these cases and fighting to get bishops to uphold the policies and govern in the matter that they had promised. I worked in several dioceses throughout my career. But from 2005 to 2013, I never worked in a single diocese that did not have a priest in active ministry who should have been barred by the one strike you're out policy. And I never worked in one that didn't have minors being abused at the time that I worked there. Each of those dioceses had a diocesan review board, a sexual misconduct policy, victim's assistance coordinators, conducted background checks, had virtuous training. They passed all their audits. And much of that abuse was entirely preventable. That's why I believe that grand juries and other civil investigations are both important and necessary. While we can quibble over the accuracy of specific findings and the level of sensationalism, with which they're written. They perform an important service because for anyone who reads them, they draw attention to the circumstances that those of us who work closely in the institutional church know too well. That there is an institutional reluctance to adequately address the problem. That there's an institutionalized culture of acceptance of the sexual abuse of children. And that there has been and continues to be massive and pervasive failure of leadership on this issue. These are not my words. They're the conclusion of the 2005 Grand Jury Report on the Archdiocese of Boston. But the key findings of that report are eerily similar to the charging documents that were filed against my archdiocese in 2015. In fact, the two documents suggest that, despite all the policies and procedures and audits and conferences, very little has changed in how the individuals who are governing the Catholic Church actually think and operate when it comes to the safety of minors. What the grand jury reports demonstrate is that the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church will not be resolved by adopting more policies, adding more consultative bodies, or making other superficial changes to the governance structures in the Church. I agree with Peter that some sort of transparent accounting of the history and scope of the crisis does seem necessary. And please note, I do not consider the John Jay reports to be adequate examples of that. I've long advocated for a form of truth and reconciliation commission, similar to what we saw in South Africa or other parts of the world experiencing civil conflict. I think a lot of the way those are designed and structured would respond to some of the needs that we have. However, try as I might, I haven't been able to envision how such a commission could be created in this context, since there can be no grant of amnesty from criminal or civil prosecution, either to individual perpetrators or institutions and parishes like parishes in school. Barring this kind of honest and open accounting from within, our best hope, is often clumsy attempts from outside to shine the light on what I have experienced to be an ongoing problem. If it creates hysteria or a lack lack of trust in the institutional church, so be it. At least parents and guardians and kids themselves know to be on guard. In addition, I think that maybe these reports Maybe the sort of disruption that the Catholic Church needs, the type of disruption that Silicon Valley has become famous for. The Catholic Church needs innovative minds capable of bold visions for how the Church can better live out its mission and protect all of its people. It goes without saying, I believe, that those minds are not going to come from within the closed, regulated, aged, largely white and exclusively male hierarchy that currently governs our church. This vision, if it comes, will come from you. So before I conclude tonight, I wanna make a few requests of you all, but especially of the students that are here. Be ready, learn your history, not only of the abuse crisis, but of those other moments of change in the Catholic church. Our church may not change often or quickly, but it has changed, usually in response to external forces. Prepare yourself to be the force for change that we need now. Study canon law. Everyone in this room has rights under canon law, but you can't exercise them if you're unaware of what they are, you are going to lead the church someday. And our best chance to avoid future crises is for you to be prepared to be knowledgeable, ethical leaders when those roles become open to you. Practice courage. It takes a lot of strength to acknowledge flaws in people and things we love. It takes even more strength to stand up against those we've been taught to revere. But these things are necessary if we're ever gonna get out of this scandal. And finally, stay. The easy thing to do is leave, to find another church or become agnostic or abandon religion altogether. But we need you to stay and we need you to fight. If you can do these things, you will be in a position to move the institutional church to greater fidelity to the Gospels. And that truly is what's going to bring about an end to the sexual abuse crisis. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Jennifer, for your comments and for your Inspiration, too. <laughs> um, what we're going to do now is move to question and answers. And as we get organized and you start to reflect on some thoughts, uh, David and Monica are going to walk around with mics and kind of do it Oprah-style, come to you with the microphone, you know, like Oprah does. And uh, to get us going and to grease the wheels, I have a couple of questions to hopefully um, uh, get a, uh, prime the pump, you could say. The first has to do with tr- uh, truth in that both Jennifer and Peter have been very, very, in my view at least, very brave that they have spoken truth to power in different but very important ways. Um, Peter published a remarkable article uh, that really pushed back on the grand jury report and Jennifer chose to be a whistleblower that um, set bombs off in the the Archdiocese of uh, Minneapolis St. Paul. And so the question for you is from an emotional side, from a psychological side uh, and so forth, how has that been for you to do what you have done so bravely and suffer certain consequences for your actions? Then the second question regarding truth has to do with so much affect and emotion and out there on this topic. How do we best find our way to truth using good data, best practices, best policies, and so forth to kind of push aside all of the agendas and emotions that tend to get in the way to to truth?
2: well i 'll just say that the uh, i've had less consequences of this um, against the grain uh, examination of the grand jury report personally than I expected. i may be since i don 't do any social media, I may be totally ignorant of denunciations of me out there, and most of the consequences were probably felt by my wife, who had to live with me while I was working on this monster article Um, I think the question of searching for the truth is very very You know it it is it is a very tough question We, we don't start from Nowhere we start from a set of assumptions that we have to bring ourselves to test and we are Flooded with often so much information that may not be the most pertinent information. I've gone back to some of the coverage of the Boston Globe exposes. And I have to say that one decade before the Boston Globe series, I wrote an article on the front page of the Weekend Review section of the New York Times that gave figures for possible victims even higher than the up to a hundred thousand and and wrote a, this about as a possible biblical plate that the church was facing um, but when i've gone back to the writing in 2002 one of the things that i became aware of was This flood, as I said, of 4,128 or whatever it was, articles by the major print media that year, how to deal with that? And many reporters, understandably in my view, dealt with it by taking paradigmatic cases. They took Father Gagan, or they took another, uh, the more dramatic cases from Boston that were highlighted, and those became the paradigms for how they wrote about this and i understand how you have to do that kind of thing psychologically but you then have to take the second step and go into the question to what extent is are those paradigms definitive how do you measure them against a larger sample uh... what overall conclusions can you follow and that's very hard to do and it's very hard to do with something like um, sexual abuse of children. And I'll close this with, since you brought up affect. I have a story from a person who was working at that time with the Bishop's Conference in the 1990s. And he told me about going past or slightly joining a discussion of bishops who I have to say Maybe, maybe improperly were arguing about canon law and canon law issues about sexual abuse. And he just had to say to them, you know, there's recently a poll out that shows that most parents would murder and molester or predator of their child and he said that because he was trying to bring some reality check in terms of, abu- of affect to this, which is necessary to get action, but it also can be a factor in, in uh, blurring our an obstacle to our search for truth.
1: Thank you. Jennifer, do you have thoughts about truth either as a whistleblower in the, with the price you paid or, or truth in terms of how do we get there with all the affect and agendas and so forth that are swirling around?
3: Um, well, you know, one thing I, I guess I can say is I'm really glad that I didn't see what was coming. Um, I was incredibly naive at the time that I think I became a whistleblower because I really had this idea that I would get this information out um, and I had a very clear timeline Um, for getting information out for two reasons. Um, I had a timeline because at the time I resigned, um, my archdiocese was trying to enter into what's called a minor settlement with some of the victims who had been abused. And what that means is that the parents consent to a settlement on behalf of the minor victims. And the archdiocese was trying to get this minor settlement approved, um, working with the victim's mother, who was a parish employee, because the amount that they would have to pay the family was so much lower if there was no process, including involving discovery. So they wanted to get this minor settlement in place before any information came out about how much we actually knew about the history of the priests that had abused them. Um, and I felt very strongly um, that I needed to get the information out so that there was no judge anywhere in the state of Minnesota that would approve that settlement. So I was working on a real um, timeframe, but I kind of felt like if I got that, story out, then I could just go on with my life um, and, you know, kind of pick up and figure out what I was going to do now that I wasn't going to be a canon lawyer anymore. That turned out to be incredibly naive, but I'm glad that I had that idea. Um, But in terms of truth, I think it's a word that has a definition, but it has different meanings Um, and there's like truth in the sense of practical facts. But for me, one of the things that I experienced in terms of truth is having to come to the realization of what it was that I knew. Um, because it's really easy for us in the church to read things like the grand jury reports or the articles that are done by journalists and see those points where they're wrong, right? This is wrong. It wasn't that kid. It wasn't that priest. They weren't that age and focus on that and miss the larger truth which is that we weren't doing our jobs.
1: Thank you. Well, hopefully we've kind of primed the pump a little bit with some questions from uh, everyone that's here. And again, we've got students, we have community members, faculty and staff, a nice uh, blend of folk, people on our diocesan review board as well here in San Jose. And um, so uh, David will be on, I guess, on this side, on the left side of the aisle, and uh, uh, Monica will be on the right side of the aisle. And so if you have a question, um, please, or comment, please chime in. We have about 15, 10, 15 minutes or so uh, to entertain your questions and comments. So uh, please take this opportunity to, uh, uh, to speak if you'd like.
2: I have a couple of questions. Uh, the first is what, speaking as a as a businessman, when you look at a, a problem in an organization, you have to look at a whole list of issues. What stands out in your mind, either one of you, as a top significant problem that has to be solved? That's the one, one question. The other question comes from a, a number of comments have been made by Catholic friends, non-Catholic friends, Jewish friends. I mean, a whole bunch of people have said, well, how does the lack or how does mandatory celibacy feed into this problem?
3: Uh, I can start in terms of your question about business because I I actually really like having those conversations and talking about how the church would function as a business. Um, For me, and this might come as a surprise, but I think it's kind of broad. I think one of um, the, the, the things to really address is how the church looks at scandal. And this really came home to me um, when the McCarrick case started to break because I got all of these calls from journalists and they'd say, oh my gosh, Jennifer, what do you think about the current scandal? What do you think about the current scandal? And I'd have to say, like, can you tell me what you're talking about? Like, what scandal, what do you mean? Um, and then they would tell me about McCarrick. And, you know, for me, I was like, yeah, okay, so what's the issue? I mean, we've all known about this for a long time. The church looks at scandal, not in the fact of what actions were taking place, but the fact that you all now know it. And so if you look at the, I I mean, I'm I'm not talking like vaguely either. Um, If you look at the code of canon law and you can go online and you can check it out and you can even do like a word search. And if you look for, you know, sexual abuse of minors, well, first of all, you won't find it, um, but uh, it's sins against the sixth commandment of the Decalogue. So you could look for that and you'd find it mentioned once. There's one canon about that.
4: If you search
3: on scandal and preventing scandal among the faithful, you'll get a page of responses. And I think that's one of the first things that has to change. Um, and that's a hard change to make. But the church has to come to realize that it's the actions that are scandal, not the discovery of them. And part of that is respecting all of us, right? And, and I'm the most to blame because I had a grandmother, I loved her dearly, um, who never knew what I did. I mean, she wanted to. She knew I worked for the bishops, but I swear she went to her grave thinking I took dictation. Because she would ask me all the time, what do you do? What do you do? She couldn't possibly envision. And I couldn't bring myself to tell her. And, you know, my grandmother lived through World War I. She lived through World War II. She lived through the Great Depression. She buried her husband. She, uh, and I was trying to protect her from this truth that I mean, she could have handled it. And I think they have to come to respect us and that we can handle the truth of these things too. So that's my answer, sorry.
2: I'm not sure that I agree about scandal. Um, I think that early on, uh, I consulted with some sociologists about the whole abuse scandal and I discussed about celibacy, about a number of aspects of the church chain of command and so on. And I I think there is a culture of deference, Uh, there is a culture of, of, as Jennifer says, of protecting the church from scandal. But they directed me toward things on the sociology of bureaucracies and i'm not that sure i have collected now clippings you know this deep about sex abuse things and the pile is that deep in fact because i've added to it a lot of things about uh, life or death as we're now seeing with boeing Uh, life or death instances where bureaucracies covered up and protected people and how do you have cultures that prevent that and I am not totally convinced that that is something particular to the Catholic Church Uh, there are aspects of it that are particular to the Catholic Church Um, I you know what is the top problem I'm not sure that I, I, I should have an answer for you but I can't give you one right now I am puzzled about the mandatory celibacy I have written in a people adrift that that should be reconsidered uh, to expand and the ordi- ordination of women, to expand the pool of potential leaders in the church, not only in terms of quantity, but especially in terms of quality. Uh, and uh, so I also think that there is a tradition in the church of celibacy in religious orders that is part of uh, something special about Catholicism, and I've struggled with ways in which this could be dealt with, and I think that, I suspect there are ways, and you see now, creeping around the edges discussion of mandatory celibacy. However, the John Jay researchers, who are not looking at this as Catholics defending things, are convinced that celibacy it was not the question in terms of sexual abuse, there's so much sexual abuse that occurs um, in, in in families and in terms of people who parents who are married. That the uh, data about abusers often showed that that they had uh, 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 it wasn't. Well, I'm getting into the question of homosexuality, where people also had had adult relationships of of uh, of uh, different sexes and so on. But there, I don't know what to do with it. My my view is, in order that the priesthood be what we want it to be, we should really reconsider mandatory celibacy in certain forms, and that probably can be arranged, Um, as that being the key issue in terms of sexual abuse. I'm, I'm agnostic about that. If I can just throw
1: some numbers on that. just to um, The John Jay studies, again, 2004-2011, found that 2% of uh, religious order priests uh, had credible accusations of sexual victimization. 6% of diocesan priests had credible accusations for, for an average of 4%. We did a study with the Anglican Church. Again, their priests can marry. We found 4%. Uh, The American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual says that we can expect approximately 5% of men are pedophiles. Uh, And that would be targeting prepubescent kids, not postpubescent kids. And we all know that only 10% of the clergy sex offenders were targeting prepubescent kids. Most of them are what we would call a feebophiles, going after the postpubescent kids. And we also know that the most likely candidates for sex offenders out there, usually the number one candidate is a stepfather, father, grandfather, older brother, (laughs) cousin, older cousin, um, uncle. Uh, And that sadly and tragically sexual abuse of kids particularly during the last half of the 20th century, was a remarkably common phenomenon. If you ask women, were you sexually violated as a child by an adult? About a third of women during the last half of the 20th century said yes, and about 15% of men say yes to that question. So we do, know, with all the troubles of celibacy that may be out there that Peter so well, are, well uh, referred to, we can't expect that if we change celibacy, all of a sudden this problem gets stopped on a dime Uh, you know, it just doesn't. Other questions and comments um, for, and David and and Monica uh, have the mics, so and they're going to do it Oprah style. They'll come to you and they'll just hold the mic for you so we can move around as quickly and as efficiently as we can.
4: Thanks to both of you. I'm Julie Rubio from the Jesuit School of Theology. And my question is for Peter. Peter, when I've, um, I appreciate so much the distinctions that you make in the article um, about past and present abuse and the things that the grand jury report perhaps didn't do well. But when I discuss your work, um, both with survivors and with some bishops, both have said to me, um, perhaps he gets too much credit to bishops and priests and what they said in the grand jury report, what they said that they did. And, and I wonder if, if, if perhaps hearing what Jennifer has said, would you, would you say that, that maybe sometimes we're giving too much credit to people who say, we did all these things. But then when we talk to survivors or we talk to other people on the inside, they're saying these things aren't being done.
2: Well, I think that's a that's a, a a basic question that a lot of people have, and the first question that I have to say that we have to do is why have we gone from 600 abuse cases annually to 20 or less? I mean, the last time I tried to figure out the audit data from CARA uh, was that about 12 abuse cases a year are committed by catholic priests now i don't know how the minneapolis data would fit into that or the other data to which jennifer referred and whether that somehow is just being covered up uh, missed uh, is it down to you know not twelve but twenty or is it thirty or forty and that would be a serious question that i th- would appreciate a independent judicial body investigating and giving us an answer Uh, that was not at all and by the way my remarks about the grand jury report were things that were based largely on not on all that appended but ignored information from the from the diocese but from their own files on the priests going through as to what were the dates of abuse what were the dates of allegation what were the actions of the particular diocese Uh, but there are legitimate questions that i would love to see people you know know, i would like to see a grand jury investigation for example that just focused on from two thousand two to onward because i think the church is becoming more and more aware of the problems of dealing with the legacy of victims from earlier periods. So I think for many people, the question in their mind now, raised by the McCarrick case, for example, which I did not know about, I'm not on the inside as in the Minneapolis Archdiocese, um, I could say more about that in a minute, uh, but the idea that everyone knew is not something that I've found verified when I've tried to do look into this. Um, but to have you know a real that kind of investigation that could tell us you know are those ad- audits accurate, uh, what could be done better, I know of no other organization that's doing anything similar. So that, that would be, you know, it would be helpful if these re- investigations did not just focus on the catholic church but on all youth serving organizations to get some comparative data now when i say that i immediately see flashing before my eyes that that can be an apologetic remark that you know our problem isn't so bad because the public schools are better or or gymnastic coaches and so on. I'm very worried about that, but I do think it would be part of a serious investigation to make comparisons, including some that, the kind of thing that Tom just mentioned.
3: Can I just, can I just add to that? Um, I think, again, this is from my experience, um, but the church doesn't do any form of reporting very well, and the audits are a perfect example of that. They're self-reported audits that nobody comes in and checks. Um, and I could provide you with some some examples of times where, I mean, there were very public stories about priests being charged and things, and the numbers not reported in the audits. Um, you know, in the archdiocese, every year you report, you know, one of the things you're graded on is, have you done background checks on all your priests? Um, and you know, the general response is, well, you know, how do we fill this out? Well, how many background checks do we do? 840. Well, then that's how many priests we have. (laughs) You know, the dioceses are under incredible pressure to pass their audits, right? They don't want to get flagged and they don't want that public relations nightmare, but they're not very good in terms of being an adequate reflection of what's happening in the diocese at the moment. That's my experience working in multiple dioceses. It's not It's not all a fault of that um, because if I asked you all to explain to me right now what counts as sexual abuse of a minor in the church, would any of you be able to answer me? Because I'm telling you as a canon lawyer, I couldn't. We don't have a document that says this is what sexual abuse of minors are. We have some framework documents. But all of our legal documents say, when in doubt, refer to moral theologians. And ultimately, it's at the discretion of the bishop, which means what's considered an act of sexual abuse in one diocese at one moment by this bishop isn't the same as this diocese and this bishop in this moment. And that is a real problem with all of these numbers. Um, What's a boundary violation? What's an act of abuse? Um, And then, you know, we get to the shifting definitions of minors, which has also changed. So I'm really hesitant to look at numbers and say, oh, there's been a decline or there's, I don't think we have that data. And I think those very facts, the facts that we can't pinpoint those definitions, that we're not all working from the same playbook, is one of the reasons that we can't get a handle around this problem. I
2: think we do need uh, more uh, unity about consensus about definitions and numbers. I think, for example, the question of what is credibly a, a credible allegation or a substantiated allegation also varies from diocese to diocese and is a problem. I think, however, these are factual questions which I, as a reporter, would love to explore. And I'm not exactly willing to agree to jennifer's generalizations about them i would like to see some of the people on a panel where you add someone from the people who collect this data uh, and can say you know whether her experience is the common thing it's my view that there are some checking mechanisms in the audits which are done by there are audits which are done by non-catholic church firms they are not just asking people in the chancery how many of this or how many of that and it's my belief that they have like auditing in business you know at some regular intervals they sometimes they you know they do this by survey but sometimes they then make sampling checks of particular of schools or chancery data or whatever i may be wrong about that but that is you know, the kind of factual matter that I think is key to where we go on all this. By the
1: way, just so you know, the auditing uh, firms, uh, the, the one that started this in 2002 it worked for about almost a decade, was the Gavin Group in Boston, former FBI people that were doing the audits, and they would do site visits and so forth, and then that shifted after about a decade to um, a, a group in Rochester, New York, and I'm blocking on the name. Donbridge. I'm sorry? Stonebridge. That's it. Stonebridge. Thank you. So Stone, So, if you wanted to Google these auditing firms and learn about them and, and look at their policies and procedures, you could do that. So Stonebridge uh, in uh, Rochester, New York, if you could just Google that, or the Gavin Group uh, in Boston. Another question?
0: Oh. One, one more question,
1: Tom. We're going to do one more after this one? Or oh, this is the last one? Let's call
0: it- Okay.
1: Okay. So we're going to do the last question. But of course, if you have a personal question you want to ask, perhaps our distinguished speakers can stay for a few minutes and uh, and and address them.
5: Hi. This is a um, two-part question with a preface. Um, I, as a Santa Clara University member, at first learned um, uh, silence is the voice of complicity during my time here. And um, looking at the issues of social justice, and it did provide a great framework for me and my path in my life. So I do want to thank the Mercula Center for Applied Ethics, which played a large part in a lot of my reflection um, for having uh, this topic. I went based upon that title alone. that being said, I do believe that institutional courage is needed for innovation in the realms of the integrity that we take for social justice. I, uh, I, my two-part question is on this preface. Um, I guess where does it stand, the the Catholic church, community, Santa Clara as an institution, a Jesuit institution, I suppose, uh, on sexual abuse and transparency and the pervasiveness in the ethos of child sexual abuse in the culture. And what I mean by that is um, parishioners themselves Nobody really is for child sexual abuse, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) But parishioners, yes, I absolutely do. I'm sorry, it's it's taking a little courage from myself.
3: No, we're glad you're commenting.
5: Parishioners themselves will say absolutely I'm against child sexual abuse, but then they will also rally around Mm -hmm. perhaps the very idyllic parishioner who they themselves have become abusers. And it becomes shrouded in secrecy and cloaked in the Catholic Church as hymns are sung, as masses are attended to. And what I have to say to you is where is the consciousness within the Catholic institution, the religion, of what is done? Because I can tell you, I can introduce myself as, I think you put it, um, the indirect victim of the future. Uh And by the future, I mean 2019, 2018. A family member of wonderful little babies as we speak, being currently sexually assaulted, and nothing is being done on a judicial level, on a Catholic level, on an institutional level, on a personal level. So I would like to know, firstly, what do you see is the temperature of the water institutionally? Secondly, I don't I shower today, but I don't shower very often these days. Because Sir, Mr. Steinfels, I understand what you were talking about because I really love the discernment that you had with your refutation, but I can assure you that there's no such thing as the more dramatic cases. And I can assure you that if you were the one being constantly sexually assaulted by a four-year-old because of something that they have been through and are going through that is supported indirectly by the church, I can assure you that no matter how subtle, how small the gesture or word, it is no less severe. My second question is...
0: Ma'am, ma'am if you anything,
5: could please,
0: please, please uh, wrap up your question.
5: My second question is, Will anybody in the Santa Clara University community, the Alumni Association, the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics, the law school, the campus ministry, will either of you help me and my family?
0: Thank you very much.
1: I don't know how you wanna respond or?
0: Well, I,
2: I mean, to respond to a personal situation is like that is very difficult and to do so honestly is you know you ask whether i will do anything from my residence in new york and my own family and issues that we have some of them which may deal with issues of sexual abuse and if i'm going to be honest i have to say to you i can't help you here at santa clara i mean I'm not sure, I just want to clarify. I didn't mean to say if I understood you correctly, there are dramatic examples. I said paradigmatic examples, which was something else. Um, What I find is the culture and the church stands uniformly in condemnation of sexual abuse of the vulnerable but when it comes to what to do about it how to intervene what forms those interventions should take whether in families sometimes in institutional settings there is a real breakdown of consensus about it and often of of real human skill in, 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 in carrying out what needs to be done. Um, I guess that's the, the best answer I can do, give, as you know, someone who's far away, really.
3: I want to say, um, that I'm sorry for what you're doing. And I appreciate the courage it took for you to come here. And to share your experience with us tonight, I'm grateful for that. Um, I can't speak for the university. I can't just. I, I don't know enough about um, your situation uh, t- to be able to provide you any more direct help than that at this moment. But if there's something that you can think of that I can do, I, I'll, I'll be happy to help you in more ways than just with my empathy. Um,
1: and certainly here in California, you know, there are many mandated reporters and so forth in that if there's any reasonable suspicion of abuse, uh, we are, you know, certainly mandated to report to Child Protective Services in the uh, county where, where it happens and of course contact law enforcement. And I think certainly in any of these kind of cases when you hear of abuse and victimization, um, where there is uh, always that um, uh, desire to report that to civil authorities. To do investigations from child protective services and for law enforcement, and then there are of course a variety of organizations that are available in the local county and so forth that can be helpful for for victims of child sexual victimization, Uh, and so. But here, you know, again, uh, I'm touched by your personal story, but um, unfortunately, I don't think any of us have a magic answer um, to solve
2: uh, the story. You could. I mean, I'm. This is my second visit to Santa Clara in ten years. I would be surprised if Santa Clara University does not have a student assistance uh, center sure. for yeah. to which to kind talk
0: of talk after this and connect you with those services explicitly. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. So we are
1: out of time, and we've had a remarkable evening with two remarkable presenters that we are very, very grateful for. So maybe we can thank them. uh, Jennifer and Peter for being with us, and of course thank David and the Markle Center for hosting such a terrific and engaging event. Thank you.